From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On this election day, embracing civil discourse to bridge the political divide. We'll hear from experts, including DU graduate and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. And I'm especially careful when I have strong views about something, that I try and go and read the strongest views on the other side. I have to admit, makes me mad, takes my blood pressure up. We've got to go back to Lincoln and the founders and begin to rebuild confidence in our institutions and a willingness to engage in debate with people who have different viewpoints. Democracies require what we call cross-cutting cleavages, right? Ways in which we disagree, but ways in which we can also find similarities. Uh, And I think that is very much lacking, an ability to come together with different identities. There is a mountain in the distant west that, sun-defying, in its deep ravines, displays a cross of snow upon its side. Those lines come from a sonnet by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a tribute to his late wife, partly inspired by a Colorado 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, near Minturn. A favorite peak of painters, photographers, and inspiration seekers, Mount of the Holy Cross is named for a cross-shaped snowfield on its northeast face. But it is not as sun-defying as Longfellow implied. A Colorado summer eventually does melt the snow, down a steep, narrow rut into a sapphire-colored lake. It's called the Bowl of Tears, another poetically inspired feature of the landscape, as hiking straight up Mount of the Holy Cross can be arduous. Before the snow melts, bring a helmet, ice axe, crampons, and plenty of rope. After the snow melts, climbing is not recommended. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's Election Day, and today we're going to talk about civil discourse. It means having a conversation with people of different viewpoints to broaden understanding. The University of Denver recently brought together experts from four think tanks. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice is a DU graduate and director of the Hoover Institution. Robert Doerr is president of the American Enterprise Institute. Dan Porterfield is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, and Anne Marie Slaughter is CEO of New America. They answered questions posed by Fritz Meyer, the dean of DU's Corbell School of International Studies, and Nazneen Barma, director of the Scribner Institute of Public Policy. Condi, I'd like to start with you by asking the question, what is the nature of the civil discourse problem in the United States today? This is a critical moment. We don't listen to each other anymore. Uh, And if you can't listen, then you can't begin to hear where your interests might come together and where solutions might come from. Instead, everyone seems to go to their corner. Uh, I think it's exacerbated by, but not caused by, uh, the way that we get our information these days. We get our information in uh, groups affinity groups with which we uh, feel very comfortable. I can today go to my website. I can go to my aggregators and go to my cable news channel. I never have to actually encounter anyone who thinks differently. And when I do then finally encounter someone who thinks differently, I think they're either stupid or venal. And so somehow we've got to start opening our minds. And I would say opening our hearts a little bit to hear how others are perceiving an issue, how others are seeing solutions. And then maybe we'll have a chance 
uh, to talk about those solutions in what we call a civil way. But I think uh, de democratic politics, uh, the policy of democracy is, as uh, Madison once called it, contestation. But to have a contest, it means you have to have at least two sides. And right now, uh, too much. We, we live in one-sided worlds. Thank you, Condi, for reminding us at the outset that this is indeed about hearts and minds. Um, Robert, let me turn to you uh, for your diagnosis of the, of the problem today. Well, I, I think Condi got it exactly right. We're, we're retreating to our corners and the fringes are dominating the dialogue and the social media world exacerbates that by, by feeding into and, and, and promoting the most sort of angry responses from people that participate in that. So I think that plays a role. I would want to particularly compliment you guys at the university because I think part of the problem is on our college campuses and that there hasn't been a sufficient viewpoint diversity and there has been too much shutting down of people who say things that are contrary to the prevailing view. And I think that oh, you have to be purposeful. You have to be celebrating and talking about things that once seemed obvious and almost cliche, but because uh, I think higher education in a broader way has, has forgotten some of these values and allowed the fringes to dominate the discussion, um, we got to go back to basic tenets. We got to be quoting Lincoln. And it, you know, when you hear Lincoln, you think, oh my goodness, but that's the state the country's in. We've got to go back to Lincoln and the founders and begin to rebuild confidence in our institutions and a willingness to engage in debate with people who have different viewpoints. The powerful metaphor that you've both put on the table of people retreating to their corners and the fringes sort of having the, the, the space, as it were. And Marie, what's your diagnosis of what ails us today? So I will build on the diagnosis of not listening and of essentially uh, talking only to ourselves. So even if we were disposed to listen, we are not in spaces where we are actually being exposed to people who disagree with us in a way that allows us to talk rather than shout or or simply defend. I'll say a couple of other things. Um, one is that it's not important just to listen. One of the most important lessons I've learned as a leader and I hope as a citizen is you can't persuade unless you're willing to be persuaded. And I will certainly say this is true as a parent. If, the ch if your child doesn't think they can convince you of anything, you are not going to make headway. You can force them, but you're not going to persuade them. And that means coming at any dis discourse or dialogue or conversation with an open enough mind to think, I'm listening and I'm willing to change my mind. Maybe not my core principles, but, I, but I'm willing to let you persuade me. And in return, you're more likely uh, to let me persuade you. I think that's, a, that's something we've lost. The other thing I would add, uh, it, and I do think cable news is, is partly uh, responsible for this, is the overwhelming salience of our political identities. Mm -hmm. So we look at people as red or blue. And I will take Condi as an example. She and I are from different parties, but I see Condi as a leader. I see her as an academic. I, I know her as a football fan. I know that she plays piano. Those are all facets of who she is that I see and in many places allow us to come together or at least learn from one another. And when you have 24-hour political news where you have people who have a stake in, in essentially erasing all those other identities, 
that's not going to work. Democracies require what we call cross-cutting cleavages, right? Ways in which we disagree, but ways in which we can also find similarities. Uh, and I think that is very much lacking, an ability to come together with different identities. Thank you. That's a really, I think, a crucial juxtaposition between our kind of uh, tendency to, to sort of retreat into these tribal identities uh, versus the need really for openness, as you kind of started out um, elaborating. Dan, uh, what's your diagnosis of the civil discourse problem in the U.S. today? Well, I like everything that was said, and I like that um, Secretary Rice used the word exacerbated because we do have forces in our society, whether it's technology or the role of some in the media or some in political life, that make the problem worse. The reality is that the problem lives within the human spirit ourselves. We are the problem um, because all humans have a tendency to gravitate towards what makes us comfortable or to move away from what we fear. This is one of the things we all have to learn in our schooling and our family upbringing and our cutie life is how to deal with our own vulnerability in such a way it doesn't prevent us from engaging with others. And then if we we do have those tendencies, which are human, to be able to understand that and factor that into how we process new information or efforts to manipulate us. One other part of the problem I wanna call out is that there's a lot of good, serious dialogue happening in community all around the country, I'm sure, on the Denver campus, uh, all around the, the country. And often the people that are in community, typically on the ground, framing and solving problems together, getting something done, they're not always looked at and celebrated as the cultural norm. And I do think part of all of our work in our different ways is to make sure that the spotlight is on those individuals because they're the ones that are actually living American ideals right now. They're not vanished. They're just not necessarily celebrated as much as they could be. Each of you uh, referenced, among other things, the media and uh, and the sort of information ecosystem that we find ourselves in and the way in which this seems to be contributing to the tribalism, to the tribal identity. We do seem to be in a world in which we live in bubbles and we are, as Condi started off the conversation saying, we, you know, we hear what we want to hear and AI is making it even worse, right? They've figured out how to feed us stuff that we want to hear. Where do you see the points of intervention? Well, I think this is a hard one because if you're in the media, uh, you want ratings, you want viewers, you want eyeballs. And we know uh, that what gets viewers, ratings, and eyeballs is actually not a considered conversation, uh, but <laughs> rather the loudest, the loudest voice. And so uh, it's hard. But uh, but if I could wave a magic wand, I would say something to the consumer of news, and I would say something to the consumer of information, and something to the providers of information. So first to the consumers, uh, don't become captive of one view. Um, I'm often asked by my students, what do you read in the morning? I said, I probably read five different newspapers. I go to several different news services because uh, I know that I'm going to get a slant in one or the other. And until I can do something about that, it's my responsibility as an informed citizen to make sure that I'm getting a well-rounded view of the problem. And I'm especially careful when I have strong views about something that I try and go and read the strongest views on the other side. I have to admit, makes me mad, takes my blood pressure up, 
but it's the only way that I can assure that I'm not living in a bubble. And since I'm constantly telling my students, if you're in the company of people who say amen to everything you say, find other company, then I have to practice that too. So to the consumers of information, you have a responsibility. Don't just sit and blame the media. You have a responsibility to seek out other views and then to the providers. Could we finally get back, and maybe this shows that I'm just an old person, when we had those trusted Walter Cronkites and those trusted David Brinkley's, who seemed to at least give us the news as straight as they could, could we find a line between commentary, which can look one way, and news, which should look another? Uh, But until that happens, uh, maybe there's more responsibility on me, the consumer of information, to make sure that I'm getting a well-rounded view. First of all, I completely agree on the consumers. We give the same talk to young people that you really need to start every day by consuming uh, media from multiple sources and multiple viewpoints, or you really aren't ready to to do your job or be successful, at least at AI. And, And I think it's a great habit to have to really broaden your readership you're reading uh, every morning. But I also think some of it is on the way in which we behave in our various institutions and the the ways you all behave at universities. We try hard to have events where we feature a viewpoint, but we also like to feature a counter viewpoint. We want to make sure there are people who disagree and are challenging us so we can refine our arguments better. We don't like to have, it's not always possible to have an event where we're all singing from the same hymn book. That's no fun. And we don't really think people that consume our product like that. Similarly, on college campuses, I think a greater effort needs to be made to bring viewpoint diversity. I I happen to think the balance is tilted to the left uh, in most college campuses among faculties. And I think university presidents need to do an even harder job to find different viewpoints and bring them to campus so that students see both both, uh, viewpoints. So different viewpoints and a more conservative. So there is viewpoint diversity. So I think... um, it's not all on the, you know, the media or the social media. They play a big role in this problem. But it's and the last one, as I would say, is the broad middle of individuals who, in the wake uh, of this antagonism from the left and the right, retreat and stay silent. I, I had a I've had two sons who uh, recently graduated from college, and and I would hear from them. Well, you know, I I just decided to just do my homework and not participate in the public debate. And I find that to be regrettable too. You've got to step up. You can't be afraid to say something and maybe be wrong and participate in the public debate, write an op-ed. And I think sometimes young people are a little too careerist in thinking, well, if, if I say anything, it might be held against me later. And I feel that's a real, um, a real, a real shame. And so it's on all of us to model the behavior that we aspire to. I want to reinforce Condi's point about a kind of of news literacy, which I would also uh, strengthen by talking about digital literacy, because it's bad enough when we are reading uh, different papers and, and, you know, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. Right. So some of this is so exacerbated by the rabbit holes you can now go down And then, of course, we're entering the era of deep fakes where you're going to see, you know, I'm going to see one of you saying something that you didn't say, which means we when we think about teaching civics and this is pre-university, but also at, at university, 
digital literacy, and I would say information literacy broadly. We need to think very hard about how we make people appropriately skeptical without making them deeply cynical. And that's a line, that's a hard line, because otherwise you just turn off uh, completely. So I, I would would strongly uh, second that, and I, you know, I, Condi, I admire the, your discipline in being able to to read things that you know are going to raise your blood pressure. But, you know that that does go against human nature in many ways. So then, the second thing I would say is we we need different archetypes of strength and confidence and power. Meaning, and this is hard because many of us here have gotten where we are because. We have good judgment. We don't, we don't, I'm trained as a lawyer. I never listen to only one side of the story. I know there's another side of the story, but I spent a lot of money learning, you know, to to think that way. Um, That makes me sort of in the middle often. It makes me balanced. Uh, That is less attractive than somebody who's got all the answers on one side or the other. The last thing I'll say, just to inject a little disagreement and to practice what we preach. So to Bob, I agree with having people who have different views, but I will say that universities have been traditionally more on the left. They simply are. It's just a a fact uh, that more university faculty across all universities, not just the big, big uh, universities we often think of, are more to the left. But then, of course, Wall Street is more to the right, right? We have other big sectors of society that are definitely biased in a more conservative direction and a more liberal direction. And I think you're right about universities, but I would make the same challenge to my good friends in the finance industry, many good friends in business, some of my friends in the tech world who are deeply libertarian. I think it can't just be a challenge to universities. We are charged with educating our young people but so none of these other sectors are forming our young adults, our medium, our, you know, our middle adults and our voters. In terms of this more local level participatory community oriented democracy, you know, the engagement of one to one, one to two together to understand one another. there It actually is a practice that America has been great at for hundreds of years. Um, and in most communities, there are people that are we call them at the Aspen Institute weavers that are intentionally and effectively reweaving community, sometimes not because they're focusing on the need for the community to weave, but on the, uh, solving a problem. And it might be in one, one neighborhood is that kids have nowhere to go after school. And so a mom opens up her house. And another neighborhood, it might be that um, people from different religious backgrounds uh, are not finding any opportunity to talk to each other. And somebody creates a book club. Um, and that's happening a lot. My colleague at the Aspen Institute, Eric Liu, has a big TED talk that's about his idea that we don't need fewer arguments, we need better arguments. Hmm. And that one of the principles of a better argument, I won't give a whole lecture, but it includes taking winning off the table at the start to try to get to understanding, trying to prioritize relationships. And as I think Secretary Rice said, listening empathetically. caring about, you know, embracing sort of what's the context in which we're talking? What, are you, what have you just experienced? How can I know where you're, where you're standing today? Um, being vulnerable, being honest, being open, you know, it's a risk, but it makes the dialogue better. Um, and sometimes that, those good principles end up not being about a debate, but about a discovery that people make through conversation of something that they never thought they would even be talking about or coming to understand. 
really good dialogue creates something new that often neither party might have come to alone. I think that that Dan's idyllic classroom is exactly right, that the faculty member's responsibility is to teach our students how to think, not what to think, and we shouldn't impose our own views. I don't think that is sometimes the classroom of today, and I think we have to admit, because the truth of the matter is there is a chill in many classrooms today. Not only do students um, not speak up, uh, as you uh, mentioned, uh, Bob, but they say things they don't actually believe. Now, I studied places that do that. I don't want to live in one. And they will say what they need to say just to get by. That's a problem for us in universities. I do think, I do agree that we have a real problem with people not feeling that they can speak. I also have two sons who just graduated from college, and I have heard from many students that they are scared that they will be canceled, that they are scared that that they can't really say what they think. But I will also say that I think there are voices being heard who themselves felt silenced for a very long time. They may not understand how best To engage, and I often think the loudest and most militant voice silences other people, other people of color, other people of different sexual orientations. But I think if we're not going to make progress unless we recognize that people who have long felt they couldn't say what they think now want to say what they think, and in the process, some of them are saying, Yeah, I'm fine if we silence you. Well, so, you know, too bad. We've got to be striving for an environment in which everyone can actually say what they think, but that we don't kind of call names or call people out in in either direction. I I agree. Uh, But I will say this, Anne-Marie, whenever I hear, you know, there were people who've been long silenced. All right. Um, Yeah. I grew up in segregated Burma. I know you do understand that, but I will say this. I always say, can you model Nelson Mandela instead? This is somebody who after 27 years in prison, came out and didn't say, well, now Blacks are in control, and so we're going to oppress whites, right? He said, we're going to have a multi-ethnic South Africa. So as voices that have been in the past silent start to speak up, as people who've been marginalized in the past start to speak up, you don't have to to take the stance of those who marginalized you just because now you get to speak. And I think we need to be very clear that it's not okay because you were once marginalized to marginalize others now. I agree with you, Condi. I do. Uh, and I I think, you know, you have a, a particular legitimacy and ability to say that. And I think there are people, younger people who agree. And I think they themselves are actually also intimidated. And I will say this is even from the context of a feminist, where I might have disagreed <laughs> at various points, but I didn't want to break ranks and I didn't know how. And again, I think what I think we need to arm people with the ability to have better conversations. The question is sort of so what? In the sense of what are the ways in which the state of civil discourse in this country and indeed elsewhere around the world is really inhibiting our ability as a as a country, as a community, to 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 address the big issues of the time, now, whether they're uh, the great issues of the in in the international arena and the in the in the role of the U.S. in the world, 
or uh, economic inequality, economic opportunity. So the area of poverty reduction or helping people move out of yeah. difficult circumstances in the United States or around the world are complicated. They're not simple. They require a multifaceted approach. They require thinking clearly about the condition of individuals, the state of the community, state of the culture, the state of the economy. If we're trapped in simplistic antagonism from two extremes, we're never going to get to the complexities that often lead to solutions that have appeal to both sides. Uh, I'm certainly not someone who's always looking to split the middle and find the consensus. But the fact of the matter is that unless you have that kind of dialogue with people who see the issue differently or bring to the table facts that you aren't recognizing or not paying attention to, you can't solve problems. And so I think it, that's the so what. The so what is when we're so divided, we can't reason and think anew and together in the way you know we have in the past to solve hard challenges. And so I think that's the problem. Our, our, we're told every day that all of our problems are simple and easy. And if you just did this one thing or why aren't they, how can they be so boneheaded? But the fact of the matter, if you've had any experience in public policy, in domestic policy or foreign policy, you know, actually, no, they're not simple. They're complicated. And in order to solve complicated problems, we have to reason together. Yeah. And, and I think you have to take, uh, I love that. And I think you have to take the time to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I'll right. give you two other downsides. And by the way, we at think tanks, we at universities, uh, on the other side from our students are people called faculty or researchers or senior fellows. And, you know, we really are trying. I think people are trying at Hoover, at AEI, at other places. Research really ought to start with a question, not an answer. Yeah. And if you start with a question and then you are clear about what your assumptions are, you're clear about what data you're using, you might actually set up uh, an opportunity to talk to somebody who disagrees because you can come from different places, but you're starting from the same place, which is we're asking a question that needs to be answered. We're not providing an answer a priori. It also goes back a little bit to the students. I laugh that when my students think if they've Googled it, they've researched it. And I have to <laughs> explain to them that there's something more in depth there. So some of it is how those of us charged with answering these questions, actually think about our responsibilities. Uh, it's not to just put more heat on, it's to shed some light. And then I would make one other point about the so what. It then gets reflected in the way that Washington in particular uh, operates. Yeah. Um, one thing that's very interesting, we have a state and local practice here at Hoover, and it's very interesting if you get mayors in the same room or yeah. governors in the same room, it's very different because they've different. actually got a balance a budget. They've got to solve a problem. They have to reach across the aisle if they're going to get legislation. And the Washington environment is, uh, I know the answer. I'm going to go to my corner. I'm going to mobilize my base and I'm going to speak to my base and the rest of you, well, you really don't matter. And then what happens is you don't, not only do you not get good policy answers, but you get a really, I think, something that's that's really uh, killing us uh, in terms of it. people start to lose confidence yeah. in our institutions. And every time somebody doesn't agree with you, well, they are attacking democracy. It, it's not that they just don't agree. 
it's that they're being anti-democratic. And I have to say, I think that's a much more Washington thing. It's one reason I'm glad I live in California. Yeah. Um, it's much more of a Washington thing, but it is, uh, that is the so what really is you don't get good policy. People are afraid to compromise. They go to their corners, they mobilize their base, and they don't think about the broad middle, actually, that would like a solution. Yeah, and we've seen this on issue after issue. I know, Dan, you do quite a bit of work on climate change at Aspen. And, you know, we just had legislation that passed on a straight party line vote uh, narrowly on an issue like that. Is that what you see in, in on any, uh, that uh, uh, we're really not finding great solutions because we're so divided? Uh, well, I mean, yes, that, that we are. There's a lot of division. And I do think we are finding places where there's breakthrough. Now, I'm not a legislative expert. You know, it's on I, infrastructure or something. Maybe, you know, you point to things like that. But I don't I actually don't want to go that way. I'd rather talk about um, yeah. how an issue is framed is very important at the outset. And so if I frame the problem as climate change, it may be that I've narrowed the possibility of the conversation to be as inclusive and creative as possible, given that another part of that problem is energy access. And so how do you think about understanding an issue? And then if you're thinking, if you're worried about energy access, then you're probably also worried about mass poverty in some parts of the world that desperately need energy. And so it's, it's not as simple as saying the problem is this little slice of the pie, but can we look at it holistically? And I find that when you take a more holistic look, the part the table gets more inclusive and the solutions become neither red nor blue sometimes. Um, so we also really involve the business community a lot in our work. We don't do that much with government. But we have a lot of roundtables that are about bringing people together from community, from business, um, uh, from sort of the research world to try to frame the issue in a new way to maybe get more fresh thinking on it. And I don't know, Emory, if you want to weigh in, maybe you know, in terms of of how this impacts uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy or our standing in the world as the world looks in at, at, well, at what they see of our politics. You know, what does that do to our standing and, and credibility and soft power? Well, I'll, I'll just start by with, really with John Stuart Mill. You cannot have a democracy without an educated citizenry, and an educated citizenry cannot actually move forward dialectically. The way we pursue knowledge, even if it's always imperfect, is to change our minds. Otherwise, we'd still be thinking that the sun goes around the earth. And so learning how to do this and learning how to do this in a way where we don't take it personally, which is hard. And I often think it's you know, if you weren't in a debating society in high school where you learned how to make these arguments or you didn't go to law school, often it it's hard to hear a challenge to what you are saying without hearing a challenge to you. And again, I think there are whole groups for whom this is particularly difficult. Um, but it it really does go to the foundations of our ability to govern ourselves without 
Shikandi, I agree with you with the sort of, oh, my God, democracy is dying. But I believe deeply uh, that there's there's a reason why it takes a certain level of development and a certain level of education to be able to sustain robust self-governance. Let's put it in, in the in those terms. So I think these issues are quite fundamental. They're also fundamental in terms of of generating at least enough sense of commonality to keep a country together you know that i consider myself a patriot that's often a dirty word in my circles uh, but i love the country deeply i also want to hold it to account and i have to feel some common cause with not all my fellow americans but with enough of them to believe that even if we disagree we 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 are we are members of one country and we're going to steer it together which takes me to the point about how this looks on the outside. Uh, and this is, it's very visible as I travel, certainly uh, in, in Europe, but also in Asia where, um, you know, I'm not sure we ever should have been lecturing other countries on democracy. I actually think the secret to our democracy is a measure of humility where we recognize we don't live up to the ideals we espouse, but we do try and we have a mechanism that recognizes when we've betrayed those ideals and we try again. Uh, but other countries are certainly looking at us often with real dismay and grief, right? That they, that they have, have looked to us as a sort of anchor uh, for democracy and to see us as as a couple of people said, you know, at a Lincolnian, or I don't know quite what the adjective is there, but a moment really where we're looking back to the Civil War, a moment of our greatest division, that is frightening to many countries and certainly hurts our ability to uh, rally the world right now, as President Biden is doing and trying to do in with the war in Ukraine, where he's saying these are democracies versus autocracies. Yes, in, in, in uh, parts of Asia and Europe, yes, countries agree. Many parts of Asia, Latin America and other parts of, of Asia do not. I mean, just don't see that as the fight. No, they, they, let me just say they don't see it as the fight. And, and uh, I agree about humility, but I will say this, show me someplace that's doing better. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to say we're regressing to the mean. That's my point. But, um, you know, the, the fact is we sometimes um, underestimate uh, the United States ourselves. I, I mentioned what states and localities are doing. Part of what we try to do, or what I would try to do when I was secretary, is not just point to what Washington does, to point to our <laughs> vibrant civil society. You know, that's also a part of our democracy. And when de Tocqueville came here in 1835, he talked about those voluntary associations of Americans who just wanted to do good. And he was sort of puzzled by it as a Frenchman. Well, you know, today we would know it as Rotary Clubs and Boys and Girls Clubs and, and American Red Cross. I mean, that's who we are, too. And so it's important, I think, that we not undersell democracy, because I will say this, I'm about fed up with, uh, with uh, authoritarian envy. Right. Yeah. Oh, they they build yes. great airports. Oh, they get things done. Well, yes, they do. Uh, anybody want to say zero COVID was a great idea? Yeah. One guy. Anybody want to say invading your neighbor with a subpar force was a good idea? One guy. So while, or not to mention the one-child policy, which now 34 million Chinese men don't have mates. 
And so I think uh, while I want to be humble about it, I, I don't want to hide under a bushel either the light of democracy and what they can achieve. And, and I often tell a little story. You know, my ancestors were once considered three-fifths of a man in the compromise that brought about the United States of America. And there I am, and I'm standing in front of this portrait of Benjamin Franklin to be sworn in as Secretary of State, taking an oath of office to that Constitution, by the way, sworn in by a Jewish woman, Supreme Court Justice named Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was my my, um, neighbor. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what Ben would have thought of this. (laughs) Well, you know, he would never have imagined it. And frankly, neither would I have imagined it as a little girl growing up in segregated Birmingham or Ruth when she was just trying to get her voice heard in law school. So, you know, we also have to celebrate the progress of America because it comes back to the fact that there is so much negative out there about our country right now that people are losing patience. They're losing faith. They're losing confidence. It's not a rose colored glasses approach. But it is to just remind ourselves that, uh, you know, democracy is kind of hard and it's messy. But uh, if you've got a better idea, tell me what it is. The, the issue of lost confidence in our institutions and in the rule of law is part of the so what here. And this lost, this lost willingness to all understand the benefits and greatness of the aspiration of our founding documents. That's been lost in this antagonism. And the authoritarian envy, as I know uh, uh, Condi knows, that's not a left-only thing. That is emerging right. And that is our problem as much as it's anybody else's problem. And it's a real problem. And I go around the country and I see people and they say things uh, that lost hope and lost belief in what we we are about. When, When you look at our history and what we've come through and accomplished, you want to just say, if you lose hope, and we won't be able to tackle this challenge either. So having the, the so what of the situation we're in is very serious if we if we lose confidence in our institutions. When is it appropriate to not give people platforms? Where does sort of civil discourse, you know, stop and end? What are the bounds of what we consider uh, civil discourse? There's a, there's a challenging question that asks us, why do we put civil in front of the word discourse? Is that uh, a group of elites uh, setting the rules for what we're allowed to talk about? I don't remember who said you are entitled to your opinions, but not to your own facts. <laughs> and that is not always an easy line to draw, but it is certainly a possible line to draw, right? We we ha- we cannot, again, we can't govern ourselves. We can't do anything if we don't actually recognize that there are facts. Now, any good scientist would tell you facts are continually being revised. That is actually, or a historian would tell you that that's what what no, that's how we advance knowledge but you can say at any given moment the balance of research shows uh, this is what happened even for an event and again in law school you're you're taught immediately never trust eyewitnesses automatically because people see different things we know that but we can assemble the evidence and determine this is m- the most likely thing to have happened so i do think Again, as as educators, universities, stewards of knowledge, advancers of knowledge, there has to be an insistence that you make your case and that that, that when you assert something as a fact, it is actually backed up with as much evidence as possible. And a good educator 
uh, not only should be doing that herself, but should be teaching students to say, hmm, what are you basing that on? And then when the student responds, you you continue to ask questions. There, there has to be that. It cannot be your view is equal to your view. Uh, we, we simply can't advance that way. The other thing, though, I will just say to the civil discourse, I want to underline the point. It doesn't mean civil as in polite, although, again, hurling insults is no way to advance knowledge. It means civil in the sense of civic, of civic space, of how we engage with one another as fellow citizens, as fellow inhabitants of the same place. Uh, And so it's vital to talk about civil discourse as a kind of discourse that has to be conducted under certain rules and assumptions that is not the same conversation you might have around your dinner table or hanging out, even though one hopes uh, we, we could improve discourse there too. Ultimately, we have to move from being in our comfort zone where we can agree about generalities about civil discourse to the point that we can actually start to put our data on the table, our assumptions on the table, our hopes and our fears on the table, uh, and talk openly. We've been listening to the launch of Denver Dialogues through the University of Denver and the Corbell School of International Studies. It's focused on engaging in civil discourse, sharing different viewpoints to broaden understanding about issues that divide us as a society. The panel featured former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, director of the Hoover Institution and a DU graduate. Robert Doerr is president of the American Enterprise Institute. Dan Porterfield is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. And Anne-Marie Slaughter is CEO of New America. They answered questions posed by Nazneen Barma, director of the Scrivener Institute of Public Policy, and Fritz Meyer, the dean of DU's Corbell School of International Studies. Our thanks to DU for sharing this audio. We'll link to the entire discussion in the Colorado Matters podcast. And when we come back, one-time political enemies prove that common ground can truly be found. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Election Day is the culmination of months of work for candidates and for the opposition trackers who've been following them every step of the way, hoping to capture a damaging moment. It can be an uncomfortable dynamic for both sides, as we've been hearing today in the conversation about civil discourse. But CPR's Benta Berkland found a former candidate and his former tracker who have surprisingly stayed in touch. Josh Hersa was 22 years old and a staunch Republican when he was hired to start following a Democratic state representative who was running for Congress. I was really idealistic in my early 20s and I had a lot of really firm convictions. The year was 2012. The Democrat was Sal Pace from Pueblo. He was challenging an incumbent Republican in what was considered a competitive congressional seat. The concept that was explained to me was more hoping to catch him saying either something stupid or doing something that is so outrageous. So wherever Sal went, Josh was there. 
waiting for him outside of his office at the state capitol, outside the House chamber, the committee hearings, following him in the hallways, even waiting for him outside the bathroom, always filming. Sal says it was not fun. But he never wanted to leave my side. And it, it was actually really sort of unnerving to have that type of nonstop attention. I had to make sure that if I had to blow my nose, I'd have to go and hide and do it. Pace recalls it was so frustrating that to get a few minutes of privacy, he'd occasionally lead Josh out of the Capitol only to duck back in through an employee's only door, forcing the tracker to walk around to the public entrance. He felt like Josh wasn't there to track him as much as harass him. I don't think I had any animus towards him, per se, but the situation was incredibly uncomfortable. For Josh, the whole thing was also awkward and stressful. He worried he might miss the moment he was being paid to catch. People don't talk about how difficult that job is, and even now, is that they spend thousands of hours and thousands and thousands of dollars following people around to get a 20-second ad spot. It's incredibly difficult to get this one gotcha moment. And Josh says he started to feel like he was just bothering Sal this guy who was trying to do what he thought was right. After watching him serve in the legislature, I actually grew up like a lot of respect for him. There was never a gotcha moment. But when election night came around, Sal ended up losing the race. And the dust settled. But Josh kept an eye on Sal's career. He discovered they had things in common. And at the same time, Josh's own political views were changing. He's now a Democrat and not working in politics. To Josh's credit, I think over a number of years, he reached out to me via social media. At first, it wasn't something Sal was thrilled about. Generally in my life, I try to surround myself with people who uh, I enjoy to be around. Not put too much energy into uh, experiences that, that I don't enjoy to be around. Still, after they reconnected, Sal found he didn't mind staying in touch. But it wasn't until this year that they really became friends. Sal posted about his new venture, owning Colorado's first professional ultimate disc team. Josh reached out and asked if we'd hire him, and I said, sure. At one of the team's last games of the season, the two greeted each other warmly and sat nearby in the VIP section reserved for the team's family and friends. Sal says he's been surprised by how their friendship has grown had a lot of opportunity to work on forgiveness and personal growth and mending something. Well, I guess it's not really mending because we were never close originally, but, but changing the narrative of our relationship. As for Josh, he doesn't regret his experience as a tracker, but it's also not a job he'd recommend. And even though he thinks Sal would have been a good congressman, he's glad things turned out the way they did. Because maybe if Sal had gone to Congress, that I wouldn't have gotten a chance to know him. Sal describes Josh as a very nice guy with a good heart. Something 10 years ago, he says he never would have realized. I'm excited for uh, the Josh and Sal relationship 2.0. It's, it's better than the first version. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. 
Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Woodfield. Our live election night coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. on CPR News and KRCC and find complete election results online at CPR.org and KRCC.org.